grab your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to um, highlight for you where we're headed over the next few weeks. Um, I'm beginning kind of a, a two-part sermon this morning called The Art of Imitation. And, uh, and what you're going to get this morning is essentially one point out of a, a three-point sermon. I'm reserving the other two points for next week. So you're going to have to see this in light of the bigger picture, and we're going to walk through that together but the Art of Imitation is the, the title of the, the sermon, the two-part sermon that I want to give you, and I believe it's important to see that this flows right out of the text, and so I want to just read for you um, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together, and then let's pull it apart. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Imitation is not just something we learn at an early age, it's something that we actually inherently long for and embrace at an early age. We see this fleshed out. If you've been around young kids, if you have young kids, one of the things you notice is at a certain point in their development, they begin to mimic and copy virtually everything you do. The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? We have a little three-year-old, and a few weeks ago, I was just walking around the house, and like he does, he's already a little parrot. He copies everything we say. He repeats every single thing we say. But he was following me around the house as he often does. But then I turned around and I noticed that he was actually paying attention to every place I put my foot and every way I held myself. And I would lean up against the wall and cross my feet and I'd turn over and he'd be right beside me, leaning up against the wall, trying to match exactly what I was doing. We all, as parents, know what it's like to hear our kids repeat something and wonder where in the world they heard something like that, only to realize it's something that we often say. We all are prone to imitate from an early age all the way through our development, all the way to the very day we die. We look up to others around us, and we long to be like them. We look up to them. Those who we strive to look up to, we like to be around, and the more we look up to them, the more we are around them, the more like them we become. So it is with our relationship to God. We are called to look up to God, to be around God, so that we too might become like Him. The text here tells us that we are to be imitators of God. We are designed to be imitators. In the second half of Ephesians, we've been reminded how we live out our identity in Christ. 
Chapters 1 through 3, if you recall, is the foundation laid of what God has done in Christ. And 4 through 6 instructs us on how to walk on that foundation. The walking is the the key portion that Paul is now focusing on in chapters 4 through 6. In fact, three times in chapter 4 or 5 here, we are going to hear the word walk, walk, walk. You'll notice that it begins in verse 2 of chapter 5. Walk, he says, in love. If you look across to verse 8, it says this, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then drop down with me to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Three times Paul exhorts us to walk in a particular way, and by doing so, we are actually learning to imitate God himself. That is Paul's point here. We are called to walk in love if we are going to imitate God. We are called to walk in light if we are going to imitate God, and we are called to walk in wisdom if we are going to imitate God. So this morning, we're beginning the practice of the art of imitation. And first here, Paul again, as we just saw, reminds us to walk in love to walk in love. And I want you to notice first in verses 1 and 2 the order that Paul gives. It's incredibly important to recognize how Paul frames this. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as, notice this, beloved children and walk in love. Did you catch that? You are loved as children of God. Therefore, you should walk in love. This is so consistent with the way that Paul unfolds all of his teaching. He gives belief first, followed by behavior. And here, as we understand who we are, our identity as loved children of God, it informs and impacts how we then walk in love as imitators of God. And if you flip this order, by the way, you actually flip Christianity upside down. See, the problem as Nancy Piercy says, is that many people treat morality, the way we live our lives, as a list of rules. But in reality, every moral system rests on a worldview. She says this, in every decision we make, we are not just deciding what we want to do, we are expressing our view of the purpose of human life. What she's saying here is that we're expressing our knowledge of who we are and why we've been created. And you see, when we come to Christ, as Paul has laid out for us so beautifully in the letter of Ephesians, we experience this radical shift in our identity, and therefore, the way we see the world and the way in which we operate within it is radically altered as well. Our worldview is shaped by God through His Word, which declares here, as Paul says, that we are beloved children. Our purpose in life, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, our purpose in life flows from our understanding of being children who are loved by God. I think you can think of your actions and your behavior, the way you live your life, a little bit like this. I'll put it on the screen to help you. Who you are determines how you live. And then, flowing from that, how you live demonstrates who you are. You see, the world often says how you live determines who you are. The Bible says something very different, that we live out of who we are. This is what Paul has been communicating in chapter 4 of Ephesians. So if that's who we are, beloved children, how does God want us to live? It is so clear here. Walk in love, he says. Walk in love. 
And the model of love that we have is God himself in Christ Jesus, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We saw last week, and I I need to remind you, that God's commands to us aren't restrictions from fun. God is not this cosmic killjoy trying to figure out how we can have as little fun as possible in this world by taking away all the things that seemingly give us the most amount of joy and satisfaction in life. You see, God's commands aren't restrictions from fun. Instead, we need to see them the way they truly are framed through the Bible. They're foundations for our flourishing. They're the boundaries God gives us so that we can experience true satisfaction, true joy, and true flourishing in our humanness. You see, when we look to the Bible, one of the things we have to understand is that God is for love. The Word of God tells us that God is love. God is for loving others, for giving himself to others. And one of the things we need to embrace as well is that God is for romantic love. Contrary to what has often been expressed in the church and in conservative Christian circles, sex is not sinful or bad. I expected at least one amen. Listen, when we think about sex, which is where Paul is going, it flows right out of his, his, this, this overarching umbrella of understanding that we are to walk in love. He's going to go right into the sexual ethic that is to capture and characterize the Christian community. And we need to understand this right at the gates, that, that sex is not sinful or bad. In fact, if you didn't know this already, let me just inform you, sex was God's idea. Amen. All right. It is not a product of the fall. It is not in and of itself sinful or bad. It is often, yes, distorted. Something good is taken and maligned and distorted and used for evil, wicked purposes. But know this, that when you look at the scriptures, the first command, this is so interesting, is the first command in the Bible to humanity is to have sex. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. This is where we all start to say, oh, the commands of God are sounding pretty good. All right, I I like the commands of God. The the, the Bible tells us, listen, that that sex is good. In fact, we have an entire book, the Song of Solomon, that is devoted to romantic love. You see, we need to see sex the way God does. Sex is a gift from him. It is intended for the human good and human flourishing. And yet, yet what we see here in verses 3 and 4 is that Sexual immorality is opposed so strongly. Say, why is that? It's not because sex is bad, but because it's sacred. You see, the more you value something, the more you care about protecting it. And because of that, God warns against that which can destroy what he has created good. In doing this, God highly values sex, and in the negative warnings to avoid sexual immorality, we need to hear that, that what God is saying is that sex is so good and so precious and so valuable, he cares so deeply about protecting it and understanding it properly. So to do that, we need to do this first. We need to reject a worldly view of sex for a godly view of sex. We've kind of already opened that can of worms, but let's do so as we look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says again, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
This negative command is given so that we can truly walk in love. Don't lose sight of that. Paul is explaining how we walk in love and how we treat one another in the community of God. And one of the things he says is that the way we view each other sexually speaking and treat each other in our sexual context is incredibly important for demonstrating true love. The focal point of worship in the city of Ephesus was the goddess Artemis or Diana. They have uncovered, archaeologists have, uh, idols and statues of, of Diana. The way she was depicted was absolutely hideous and grotesque. She's this female goddess who is literally covered all around her in breasts. She was regarded, you see, as a fertility goddess, and sexual orgies were actually regularly associated with the worship of her. What's so fascinating to consider is that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and, and we, we often lose sight of this. Consider this for a moment. Paul is not writing to a group of people who have grown up in the church. Think about that for a moment. He is writing to first-generation Christians. He is writing, in one sense, to the very first Christians. You say, well, why does that matter? It, it matters because so many of us have grown up in a Christian context where sexual immorality has been viewed as dishonoring to the Lord already. You have to think about the lifestyle these individuals were already living when they came to Christ. Most of them, if not all of them, were caught up in this practice of sexual misconduct. It was a part of the pagan lifestyle. It was a part of the pagan religious worship ceremonies. It was just a part of who they were. And all of a sudden, they've been ripped out of this old context, and they've been given this new identity in Christ, and they're being told by Paul that they can no longer live like this. They can't walk like this. It's unloving to live in sexual immorality. You say, why would Paul have to remind them of this? Because some of them were still living like this. Because the temptation, based on the lifestyle they had come out of, was still pulling at them. Because for many of them, perhaps, there was still ignorance as what, in terms of what was appropriate and what was inappropriate, what was honoring and dishonoring. And so Paul is sorting this out for them. He's saying, look, your worldly, worldly view of sex is wrong and sinful, and it is not pleasing to the Lord, and you need a reorientation in how you view and understand sex and sexual morality. In many ways, this was a real problem then, just as it is now. And I'll spare you the statistics, but I, I had the joy of reading through statistics this week, describing and, and uh, qualifying the, the sexual immorality and perversion in our own culture, and how it has just become so normalized, not only in our culture, I was reading statistics that dealt with the church, and how it has become so normalized in the church. Author Camille Paglia, I think, defines with this statement uh, the culture that we live in. She says this, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. And I want you to notice here that we see the call for purity as being comprehensive. That's what Paul is after here. It's a comprehensive, holistic view of how we approach the idea of sexual ethics and sexuality in our lives. And the first place he goes is towards our actions, our behavior. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among us. 
The word there for sexual immorality in the Greek is, is the word porneia. It's where we get the English word pornography from. But to simply limit our understanding to pornography would be flawed. You see, it's far more comprehensive than that. Here, the word porneia in the Greek, sexual immorality, it involves any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. You see, God has given the right context, the proper context for sexual expression, and that is the the covenant relationship of marriage, which is between one man and one woman for life. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But here the idea is this, anything outside of that, you say, well, you, you want to start making lists and trying to think through what might be appropriate or not appropriate. Just, just does it fall into this category? Anything outside of the covenant union between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that union is viewed as sinful when it comes to expressing our sexuality But not just, I want you to notice this, it's not just in our actions, it's also in our thoughts. He uses the word here for sexual, for all impurity, excuse me. And here we see it's just not just the the dirtiness, the filthiness, the shamefulness of sin, of sexual sin, but what's going on internally that defiles us. It's what's happening internally in our minds and in our hearts that is the real big problem here. Jesus drew this out in Matthew chapter 5 when he talked about the danger of lust. And he tells us that if, if we have actually lusted after a man or a woman in our hearts, we're guilty of committing adultery. You see, he goes below the surface. He pushes below, peels back the, the, the surface level behavior, and he peels it back. And he says this, if it's going on in your mind, if it's something you're thinking about, you're actually in the process of committing sin. What happens inside of us matters deeply to God, and sexual immorality, by the way, is often at the top of Paul's sin list. Whenever Paul gives a sin list, you can be sure that sexual immorality falls right towards the top. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Colossians 3.5 on the screen behind me says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What's earthly, Paul? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He, He goes on to list other sins, but just notice how he front loads the sin list with sexual immorality and impurity. Notice Galatians 5.19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. You want to know the first thing when Paul says, you want to know if you're fleshly? The very most evident factor demonstrating that you're fleshly is often seen and is most clearly seen in your sexual immorality. See, why? Why? Why does Paul place it towards the top? I think one of the reasons is that it's so utterly destructive to our lives. And listen, all sin is, is destructive to our lives. I think we can all agree to that. But there is something uniquely destructive about sexual sin. Sexual sin has a way of controlling us and killing us like few other sins do. It has a way of consuming people, of defining people, of distracting people, and of utterly destroying people. And when I say destroying people, I mean both the offender and the offended. The the one committing the sexual immorality is so often abusing others, but in the process of doing so, seeking his own pleasure and passions, you want to know what he's doing? He's killing himself. He's hollowing himself out from the inside. But when we think of sexual immorality, we have to see how much it is hurting the offended as well. 
We have whole industries that are built upon sexual immorality, and the very basis of those is offending others. The pornography industry is filled with kidnapping and sex trafficking and forcing women into participating in things that they don't want to do. Prostitution. All all of these things are horrendous affronts to God, and they are destroying both the people committing the acts and those who are objectified within them. I think when we come to scriptures, one of the things we see is that all sin is not created equal. It is equally punishable by God. It is equally, in one sense, offensive to God. But not all consequences for sin are the same. And I believe there's a special kind of shame and guilt and condemnation that is produced by sexual sin. And that is because it is intended to express something deeply intimate. It is intended by God to express covenant love. It's not something to be fooled around with or trifled with or taken lightly like so many in our culture do. And so Paul says here that it must not even be named among you. Can you just catch how serious this is to Paul? I mean, some some say there must not even be a hint of it among you. I mean, you you shouldn't be able to find any sexual immorality in a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at. It needs to be utterly and totally purged and eradicated from your life. This is a comprehensive call for purity in every aspect of our being. And not only notice this from our actions and thoughts, but from our speech also. You see how comprehensive this is getting? Paul says in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Here we see... Paul shifting gears towards our speech. And we're reminded, listen, that the way we use our words in talking about sexuality in general is important to God. We've already seen that we need to have words that are building up instead of tearing down. We saw that last week. But here we're told specifically that we need to have words that are free from sexual impurity and immorality. That's what all of these terms are defining in in the context here. It's talking about filthiness regarding the way we speak about sex in general, the way we maybe make light of it or the way we joke about it. Foolish talk and crude joking are out of place when it comes to sexual issues. This is talk that is often referred to as locker room talk that is acceptable in certain spheres of our lives but not others, around certain genders but not others. The foolish talk is really being more flippant about uh, sexual matters. And maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you have a real problem with speaking uh, in a filthy or foolish way when it comes to sexual things. But maybe for many of you, you're sitting here like, that's not me. That's not a struggle. I mean, I don't talk like that. And, and praise God for that. But let me just push into some uncomfortable areas. You ready for this? Okay, just get ready. You're going to want to buckle up for this. Maybe you're not, and, and I'm not comfortable speaking like this, but let me ask you this. Are you comfortable hearing this? Before you say no, let me push a little bit deeper. Are you comfortable hearing people joke sexually in the television programs you watch? In the movies you watch? How about the music you listen to?
Some of you are like, well, this, this is, you know, now you're starting to sound a little bit legalistic. Listen, this isn't about being legalistic. This, this is an all-out fight for holistic purity in your life and mine. This is about a pursuit of something greater, of something better, of something precious. And I'm convinced, and I've seen it in my own life, that I'm far too comfortable allowing myself to see or to hear things that I have no business seeing or hearing. You know, maybe you were told the phrase like I was when you were, when you were young, growing up, you know, garbage in, garbage out, and you kind of, you know, maybe you, you especially as a teenager, you know, you pushed against that, and like, no, you know what, what, I, what comes in doesn't impact me that much. I wonder, parents, if you've ever had the experience of maybe, maybe you listen to the radio a lot, and if you're not paying attention to the lyrics, sometimes our kids can make the lyrics very clear for us. Have you ever heard a child begin to repeat the lyrics of a song that you didn't even know were there? And all of a sudden realize that what they're singing about is so laced with sexual innuendo and graphic descriptions of sexual behavior and objectification of women. I'm telling you, I'm, just, I'm convinced of this. We are far too comfortable hearing things that we have no business hearing. And if you don't believe that garbage in, garbage out is real, then I'm telling you, you are marching down a path of foolishness. You cannot avoid being influenced by that which you choose to subject yourself to. What about crude joking? The idea here has the idea of being witty, you know, the ability to turn anything into a sexual joke. We've all seen those shows, or maybe we have those friends, or maybe it's, it's even us. We can take anything and, and turn it sexual in an instant and get a laugh out of people. That's what it's talking about here. This crude joking has no place in the Christian life. And I, I remember growing up, and this is so common, this is so common particularly among a teenage boys and even a little bit younger than that. And I used to pride myself in not telling crude jokes but again, let me push this deeper. I wonder if you can relate to this. I was guilty all the time at laughing at them. I wouldn't be caught dead telling them, but I was quite comfortable laughing at them. And how many of us would refuse to tell a sexual joke but are perfectly fine laughing at them? How many of us can sit and watch a television show, a movie, listen to comedians or watch comedians or have friends around us where we are constantly barraged with sexual jokes and have no problem laughing at them as if it's no big deal and can do hear from the word of God today? It's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. A really big deal to God. It must not even be named among you. There can't even be a hint of it among the people of God. It is not fitting for us. This is what the Word of God is telling us today. And there is a desperate need for a purging in our souls and in the body of Christ that has become inundated with a hypersexualized culture. Maybe it's time that some of us take this a lot more seriously than we have been. Making light out of what God has made sacred should produce righteous anger, not unrighteous laughter. Paul says it's out of place. So let me ask you this morning, are, are they? Are they out of place in your life? Can they be named among you? Paul says if you're going to walk in love, and this cannot be the case any longer, and you need to reject a worldly view of sex which treats it trivially, and you need to embrace a godly view of sex which treats it as sacred. Secondly, if you want to walk in love, here's what you need to do. You need to replace selfish idolatry with godly gratitude.
He says in verse 4, And let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Look at this. Look at the contrast. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You'll notice that in verse 3, he says that there, the sexually, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. Did you catch that before? I skipped over it on purpose until now. You see here, this is a call for purity in every area of our beings, and not just in our actions, not just in our thoughts and words, but also, notice this, to our desires. He gets right down to the level of desire. I love how the Word of God does it. It just peels back the layers, layer after layer after layer. It gets below the surface, and God reminds us he's not just concerned about behavior modification in the Christian life. He's concerned about heart transformation. He goes right to the area of desires, and that's what that word covetousness really gets to. And he relates, listen, sexual immorality and impurity to covetousness. You say, what what is covetousness? I mean, it's it's very simple, right? When you want something that doesn't belong to you. That's what's called coveting. This is the 10th commandment, right? And notice here that it is tied too to sexual purity. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I mean, some of us have, have a hard time processing um, wanting something and, and taking something. And I, like, we, we often try to take stuff. Actually, can I, can I take your phone there? Thank you. You know, we, if we just take stuff from people, it's because we want it. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> How dare you? What, what, what? That's not yours. You had no right to do that. And there's a sense of anger. Listen, it was mine. I gave it to her beforehand and I just took it back. Okay? Just in case some of you are ready, like, this is it. I am out of this church. How, he thinks he owns everything. Listen, listen. When we long for and lust over someone, it essentially, listen, dehumanizes them and reduces them to a sexual object that we think we can do whatever we want with. Our sexual immorality says that we think we can take what is not ours and do with it as we please. We can destroy it, we can damage it, and they're, listen, just like you were outraged when you thought that phone was hers and not mine, Why, too, are we not outraged when we do with things that aren't ours what we think we should, what we want to do? We need to remember that men and women are not sexual objects, or they're not a commodity, and we don't have the right to do with them what we want, even, listen, listen, even in our minds. By the way, what Paul says about sexual morality, not just to other people, when it pertains to you, Christian, listen to this. Paul says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? You, for, help me somebody, you are not, what? Your own. You were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, don't you understand? It's not just that you can't do things with other people because they're not yours in the first place. You can, as a Christian, do stuff with your own body sexually that's immoral because you're not your own. You're, you're God's. 
And he has put his seal of authority upon you. We've seen this already. The spirit of God that is within you, his ownership is marking your life. Now, does your sexual purity demonstrate that? All the way down to the area of desire. Notice here that Paul is appealing to the heart because the root of sexual immorality and impurity is, notice verse 5, an idolatrous heart. Do you see this? The disorder that we suffer with is a worship disorder. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, notice the brackets here, that is an idolater. You know, we normally think of idols as being physical, physical objects excuse me, that we bow down to. But the Old Testament makes it clear in Ezekiel chapter 14 that we have idols of the heart. Sex is a, an idol in our culture. Sex is something that is, is viewed as a god in our culture for so very many. You say, well, what is an idol? Listen, at root, you can define an idol like this. An idol is anything you look to in place of God for identity, for meaning, and for satisfaction. That's what our culture looks to in sex. You see, immorality, the Word of God teaches us this morning, is ultimately a spiritual problem. It's not simply, as the world wants to tell us, physical urges we must deal with or that are natural and fine and you can just kind of follow through with them and be true to yourself. That's what the world wants to say many do in the world about sexual immorality. But Romans 1 makes this clear as well, that exchanging the truth of God for a lie affects everything, including and especially your sexuality. You know, idols always let you down. Every time, you can bank on it. They lie to you. They never keep their promises. They let you down. And oftentimes, our idols can actually be things that are good, that are gifts of God, like sex itself. Sex itself is not, like we've said, sinful or bad. But here's the problem. And again, I'll put this on the screen because it's so important that you see this. A good thing made an ultimate thing becomes a destructive thing. And that's what some of us are inclined to do with sex. Some of us are inclined to do with our spouses or relationships or money or our careers. We place it in a position above God. We make it an ultimate thing and we long from it what only God can give to us. And so it always lets us down. It ultimately ends up destroying us from the inside. And you see, you need to embrace that about your idols. They'll not only let you down, they will always take you down. Many of you have experienced this related to sex. But to walk in love, we must not only put, these, put off these realities, we must learn to replace it. You see, selfish lust must be replaced with selfless love. That's why the umbrella of our text this morning is the idea of walking in true love. You see, lust is using another for the good of self. Love is giving yourself for the good of another. They're opposites. And that's why the picture of love given is, is in verse 2. It's Jesus Christ. And notice how the love that he walked in is defined for us. He loved us by giving himself for us. It wasn't in abusing us. It wasn't in using us for his own good. It was in giving himself sacrificially for our good. That is true love. True love always gives, not takes. 
And again, in verse 3, I just want you to see this. This is just, it's so laced throughout all of Paul's writing. It's rooted in our belief, our behavior in this. As is proper, he says, did you notice this? Among saints. In other words, he says, don't you understand? This is who you are. You're saints. You're the holy ones. That's what saints means. Redeemed by God, made holy by the blood of Christ, separated from sin unto God. So he says, that's who you are, so now live like it. You say, how, how do I fight this, though, m- more fervently in my life? And some of you have been asking that question because you've been struggling with sexual immorality or impurity and, and temptations and falling and stumbling just repeatedly for years and years and years and years and years. And, and this, in many ways, is, is a part of your life that you hate, but you don't feel like you can gain victory over, that there are lots of ways you can fight against sexual immorality in your life. And the, the Scriptures teach us a lot of things like flee, get away from it, run far from it, set up boundaries in your life so that you can can't easily access things that are going to make you stumble and fall. But I believe one of the most helpful theological truths that is given to us is found right here in the Word of God. He says, walking in love, sexually speaking, requires replacing a covetous heart, a greedy heart for things that aren't ours, with a thankful heart. Did you catch that there? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It is so fitting this morning that we are praying the prayers of thanksgiving. Again, this was not planned by us. It was certainly planned by God. You see here, a covetous heart and a thankful heart, they're opposites too. Like lust and love. And it's linked directly to your identity. You see, if you know who you are and what you've been given, the only proper response is gratitude. This is a massive part of the antidote to sexual sin that I think so many fail to implement in their lives. You see, sexual sin is rooted, as we talked about, in covetousness, which says this, I want what I don't have. I want what's not mine. I want what God has not given me. And can you just see how at the heart of that is a full-on rejection and discontentment and revulsion towards what God has given you? Can you see that? I mean, think about it. When, when you're saying, I want, I want, and you're going, and you're willing to take what's not yours, your ultimate, at the heart, this is a God problem. At the end of the day, you're saying, God, I do not appreciate what you've given me. I do not appreciate the spouse you've given me if you're married. I do not appreciate the right outlet you've given us in marriage. I do not appreciate all that you've given me in your grace, in your kindness. And instead, God, I'm going to reject the goodness of what you've given me, and I'm going to take what I think I deserve. That is the epitome of a thankless individual, isn't it? That's the epitome of someone who does not value or appreciate the goodness and the grace of God. I want something else, God. And listen, if if that's you this morning, you just need to hear that's what you're saying. You're not enough for me, God. That's really what you're saying. Because what you've given me isn't good enough. And if you're you're single, listen, you're single here, and you're pursuing sexual immorality, if you're pursuing relationships outside of marriage, sexual relationships outside of marriage, can I just encourage you with the word of God, stop it right now. 
There's no place for that. But I just want to speak to you if you are single here this morning. Listen, it's not wrong for you to desire a spouse. It's not. In many ways, it could be a good God-given desire. But can I just gently tell you that it is wrong to lack gratitude to God for what he has given you? The Apostle Paul praises singleness throughout the New Testament because of the greater devotion you can have to Jesus. Paul actually says that actually singleness can be a good thing. It can be a gift from God. Even to, so that, you understand how that works? Like, even if it's for a season in life where you're single and still desiring a spouse, those two things don't have to compete with each other, by the way. You can, in a God-honoring way, desire a spouse and pursue a spouse while at the same time being thankful and content for being single and using that time wisely for the Lord. You see, what God says, what Paul says through his word, through God's word, is that, listen, the single person doesn't have all the demands on their life at that season in life that a married person has. They don't have to worry about caring for a family and supporting them and raising children. Instead, in one sense, they can devote themselves wholly in a different way towards more specific things for the Lord. That's not a call, by the way, if you're married to run out to be single. Paul actually addresses that in 1 Corinthians 2. Both are good. Both are good. I just, I just want you to see that so much of fighting against the discontentment in our lives, whether it be with sexual things or with other things, is a result, listen, of, of ingratitude to the Lord for what He has already given us. I'm as guilty of this as any of, of you are, and I'm feeling the weight of this as well. And one of the things that God has been convicting me of is, Ian, be a more thankful person. Be, be more considerate of what I've given you. Stop wanting more and different So regardless of the position of your life, married or single, wherever you may be in life, the key is living in gratitude and thankfulness for who the Lord is. Listen, this is really important. You say, how do I do this? Give me something specific. Be thankful for who the Lord is over and over and over through the Psalms and through the Old Testament. We are reminded to be thankful for who God is. Listen, if God didn't do anything for you, he's still worthy of our gratitude and thanksgiving because of who he is. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. And so start reflecting on the character of God. If you just want to get your heart into a position of thankfulness, that's what we did in our prayer time this morning. God, this is what the Word says about you. Go back to the Word. Open it up. What does this say about God? And how can I let my heart be thankful for how God has revealed himself to me? Just be thankful for that fact that God has revealed himself to you. And then you can be thankful, listen, for what he's done for you. And here, some of us struggle with this. We struggle to think of anything in our lives. Off the top of our head, if I said to you, what are you thankful, that the, what has God given you right now that you can be thankful for? Many of us might struggle to come up with more than three things. Uh, you want to know why that is? Because we're always so focused on what we don't have. We forget to remember what we do have. God is just pulling us back here. Just let him pull you back. What has God given you? If you're married, he's given you a spouse. You've got kids, maybe. Maybe you've got a home. Maybe God's given you financial provision. Maybe he's blessed you in a multitude of different ways. And, and listen, if, if, if we were wise, we would sit down every single day. And maybe when you, one of the practices you can just kind of embrace in your devotional life is as you begin your time with the Lord, maybe in prayer, start jotting down things you can be thankful for to the Lord. And watch how that just changes the way you pray. All of a sudden, you start wanting to go, God, for his hand and start wanting to go to God just out of praise. Look at what you've done already, God. So how can I 
cultivate this in my life. And I, I believe this is so hard. We live in such a consumeristic culture, a materialistic culture, that thankfulness is so hard because we're so busy, again, looking at what we don't have. So let me give you some tips. Some of you are like, I really need to get this figured out. Here's something radical you can try. Listen, do a social media fast. <gasps> Your heart's just stopped. Listen, do a fast from all of your shopping, consumeristic apps on your phone or habits in your life. Like, just delete them off your phone, right? Pinterest included, ladies, okay? And some men. You say, well, why? Because, listen, those are outlets we go to. I, I understand there's value in all of those things. I really do, and I'm not diminishing the fact that they can be used for good. They have good purposes. But, listen, so often we miss the subtlety of what's happening. We're looking at other people. We want what they have. We long for what they have. And in the process, we're becoming discontent with what we do have. We're constantly looking at things to purchase and buy, things, things we don't have, things we think we, we need. And let's be honest, they're not often things we need. They're just simply things we want. God is prying our grip off the things of this world, listen, so that we can have our, our grip around him and his grace, and that is one of the ways you cultivate gratitude in your life. You constantly push off the desire for the things of this world, and you increase the desire for the things of him. You know, fasting from those things, listen, can be a great tool in your life to help recalibrate the lack of thankfulness maybe you're experiencing in your life. I want you to notice how Paul shifts gears here now. He wants to heighten the seriousness of this for us. You see, here's where he's going. He's going to tell us that a pattern of unrepentant sexual immorality doesn't just display your ingratitude. It actually displays your destiny. And in verses 5 through 6, listen to what he says. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I just want you to notice the contrast again. He has called us beloved children, right? We are beloved children, and here the contrast is with sons of disobedience. And the two destinies are radically different, and so what we see Paul exhorting us towards, if we're going to walk in love, is this. Run from eternal destruction and to eternal satisfaction. And just hear this, what Paul is not saying is that if you ever struggle with sexual immorality or impurity, that you're all of a sudden excluded from the kingdom of God. He's not saying that if you fall as a Christian into sexual immorality in your life, that all of a sudden you lose your salvation. We don't believe that. The scriptures don't teach that. Here Paul is doing what he does with all sin, that if you live in patterns of unrepentant, willful sin, it is demonstrating the reality of who you are in relationship to him. It is demonstrating that you're either, if you walk in patterns of obedience, that you're a child of God who is loved by him. And if you walk in patterns of disobedience, you're demonstrating that you're a child of wrath, you're a child of darkness, you're a child of Satan. You're not in the light as he is in the light. So here, just hear this as clearly as I can say it again. This is talking about unrepentant sexual immorality. Patterns of it. And like all patterns of unrepentant sin, they separate us from God's blessing and they are deserving of God's wrath. 
That's exactly what Paul is telling us here. And it's not something that you have to be questioning. It's not something that you can be unsure about. He makes this emphatic. You may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom. Here's what you have to see. Listen, there is an eternal destiny awaiting every single one of us. It is either going to be one of eternal destruction and based on what we do with Jesus, or it is going to be one of eternal satisfaction where we find, listen, that everything we gave up for temporary satisfaction in this life, listen, every temporary satisfaction from sin that could be gleaned from this life will be overwhelmingly trumped by the eternal satisfaction satisfaction that will be ours forever in the kingdom of God, okay? This is all about delayed gratification, if you're wondering. Don't fall prey to being someone who just loves the sin and the flesh so much and the temporary satisfaction of this world that you forfeit the eternal satisfaction that is so much far superior than anything this world has to offer. This here, the satisfaction that you get to experience here is just a glimpse of the greater satisfaction you will receive one day when you meet Jesus face to face. And that is what his kingdom will be for us. It will be a place of total satisfaction because it is there, listen, that sin will be utterly eradicated. It is there, no, listen, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more offenses or being offended, no more sexual deviation and harm and pain. It will be a place of utter and total purity. That's what the kingdom will be. Pure holiness, pure obedience to God, pure joy and pure satisfaction awaits all of those who demonstrate in this life that they are truly children of God. And those who are not, and he says, don't, don't let anybody deceive. There's so, so many people want to try and tell you that God's not going to punish anybody for their sin. Everybody's going to be accepted at the end of the day. doesn't really matter what you believe. doesn't matter your religious convictions. All leads road to the top of the mountain. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived to thinking that you can live, listen, like you're not a follower of Christ, right? Live like you're not a follower of Christ and still claim Christ as your own. You can't, not according to the Bible. And hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. Listen, wrath awaits those. God's justice will be unleashed upon those who are sons of disobedience, who live in patterns of sexual immorality and purity, in patterns of just sin. And remember, just listen, we have a hard time wrestling with this, some of us. Remember that God is fully justified, as we saw last week, being angry towards evil. It is his right response to sin that flows out of his holiness. You know, justice is something we understand. We'll use words like this all the time. That's not right. That's not fair. How dare you? You realize that's rooted in your sense of justice? The problem is we like justice when it pertains to others, not so much when it pertains to us. We like the idea of mercy more so when it comes to us, less so when it comes to others. God is just, and thankfully for us, he is also merciful. And God warns us here, not just to scare us, by the way. This isn't just hellfire and brimstone. God's trying to scare us into heaven, although it should terrify us, the reality of a life apart from him. 
God doesn't just tell us this and warn us here simply to scare us, but to invite us toward grace and mercy. I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Some of you, I know you felt the weight of this, and you need to hear the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I thought you said this was going to be hope-filled. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I love this. Here's where he turns it around. Look at this. And such were some of you. That's what defined you before. That's who you were in the darkness of your heart, in the deadness of your life before God. Listen to this. This is the, one of the best phrases or passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Amen? You have been taken out of the filthiness and the shame of your sin, and now for you there is only cleanness, and there is now therefore no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel, that who you are today and who you were apart from Christ no longer has to define you or your future eternity. See, how is this possible that we can be washed like this and cleansed like this all the way back full circle to verse 2? Because out of love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that's how. Because on the cross, Jesus takes what we deserve to inherit, God's wrath and God's justice. And because of the cross, we get what he inherited, his kingdom and his righteousness. And when you think about how unfair that trade is, what should that provoke in your heart? Awe? Yeah. Gratitude? Yes. Worship? Most definitely. You see, walking in love is ultimately to walk in worship. It's a worship issue. It's a worship disorder. And we worship our way into sin, so we must learn to worship our way out of sin. And like Jesus, we are called to live our lives as if it were a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Did you catch that in verse 2? That he gave himself up for us and hear how that is qualified or defined? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is Old Testament language for worship. His whole life was an act of worship to God. Perfect obedience, perfect righteousness flowing from a perfect love for the Father. And that is what qualified him to be the perfect Lamb of God, to be slain for your sins and mine. You see, we can only love each other properly when we're seeking to love God fully. This is what Jesus said when he was asked, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And his answer, we know it, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he went on to say, and the second is like it, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend all the law and the prophets. You see, what Jesus teaches us and what he models for us is simply this, that when our hearts are centered on God, only then do we have the power to fulfill the commandments that deal with our behavior. 
So we replace the lesser focus on sin with the greater focus on God. And we replace the lesser love of self with the greater love of God. And we replace the lesser worship of idols with the greater worship of God. This is what Jesus did. And this is who we ultimately imitate. So like Jesus, let us respond to the Father's love by walking in love and giving our lives as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.